Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update providing up-to-the-minute information on interest rates, loan programs, and hot industry news relating to the mortgage industry. Brought to you by Mortgage Banking Solutions, enabling executives to take their business to the next level. To participate in today's program, our guest call in line is 646-716-4972. And now, here is your host of Lickin' on Lending, David Lickin'. So good to have you with us, everybody. Appreciate you joining in from all parts of the country. And one of the fun parts is we have the switchboard up here so we can see people dialing in literally all over the nation. And uh, so good to have you participating and uh, listening in, whether it be phone, your office phone, your via the Internet, downloading, listening on a streaming basis, However it is that you're listening, we appreciate you being a part of us. Monday, this is Monday, of course, and it's February 1st, which means, of course, it's caucus day in Iowa, and uh, a lot of media attention going into the state of Iowa. What an interesting election we've been <laughs> that we have underway here. Uh, it is probably as entertaining, but it's now starting to get serious. And so, you know, it's, oh, you could say it's always been serious, but some would argue with some of the drama or some of the uh, entertainment factor in there. Uh, that it, you know, it's been as much entertaining as it has been you know, interesting. But all of it interesting and entertaining. Now we're starting to really get serious. The issues are coming out, and so for those of our listeners that are up in Iowa, we'll be thinking about you as everyone has garnered up their attention. All media is up there, so all eyes are on Iowa. So we'll take a look at that. Also, we've got uh, you know we don't do the birthday week here, but I want to shout out some things. Alice Alvey's birthday is tomorrow. Uh, from she's from the, of course the Detroit area. Rick Ruby's birthday, a good friend of mine, is uh, on birthday was on Sunday. So happy birthday to the two of you, both roots in there in the great state of uh, Michigan. So. Again, we appreciate you taking time to join in with us. Uh, This is, again, the broadcast that's created by uh, mortgage professionals for mortgage professionals, and we're the proud recipient of the Innovation Award by Progress in Lending. So really good to have that distinction. Today's hot topic is we're focusing on something that's really getting a lot of attention. It's mergers and acquisitions, and we have a good friend of mine and uh, someone I have a tremendous respect for. I've known for many decades, Chuck Klein. He's the managing partner and uh, and uh, just a great guy and probably one of the four most expert, experts in the nation talking to us about M&A, and we'll have him on in the Hot Topic segment. I want to say a special thank you to our sponsors. A, uh, the one, our newest, one of our newest sponsors is Arch MI, Mortgage Insurance. Uh, they're the creator of the new innovative RateStar product, which we'll be hearing more about here a little bit later. Also, special thank you goes out to Motivity Solutions, the Mortgage industry's leading business intelligence technology in the nation, providing real-time reporting as well as dashboards and scoreboards. You're going to hear uh, we have the KPI of the week. I'm looking forward to having that a little bit. Also, Velma, which stands for Virtual Electronic Marketing Assistant. Brent Emler and the staff there at Velma do a great job of helping you get out promotions that are tailored to your needs. You can do a set-it-and-forget-it campaign as well as create one that is on the fly. Check it out at Velma.com. The, excuse me, the nation's easiest and most affordable, powerful marketing platform I've seen out there. It's great to have them all, of course. And, oh, there's a new sponsor. And this one I'm really I'm excited about all our sponsors, so that made it sound like I'm more excited about this one. But this was really timely. We have just added, as of today, Simplify is a part of our sponsor 
uh, pool, and we're very excited to have them here. And they have some TRID solutions that you need to be aware of. I'm really excited about this, especially with all the TRID trauma that's been going on out there. Your TRID, they have a TRID collaboration system that would provide uh, some really good communications on post closings and tracking more. It's, there's a, they have a successful TRID collaboration solution, not only that allows you to collaborate with, this, uh, with settlement agents uh, before closing, but it also is much more. You can communicate about fees, fee control. You have uh, fee labeling issues that get addressed. Uh, the post closing tracking comes standard with the system. Uh, you get to control and be no, in, in control of where things are at as it relates to so many aspects of TRID. And we're going to be talking more about that. In fact, we have um, an attorney to, uh, as our guest next week, and we're also going to have one of the uh, executives from Simplify coming on and talking about it. So there's a lot of information. I am most excited about the communication parts that this brings. So Simplify Simplify your trid problems. Check it out by going over to simplifile.com. It's S I M P L I F I L E.com. Or you can call them at 1 800 460 5657. Also, want to say a special thank you to Alice, Joe, Andy, Paul, Sam, and the rest of the crew that make this program possible. Some upcoming NBA conferences I want to make you aware of. Uh, February 16th and the 9th through the 19th, the National Servicing Conference and Expo will be at the Hyatt Regency in Orlando, Florida. March 1st through the 5th, there's, we have the Midwinter Conference in Avon, Colorado. And then on March 10th, uh, we have the Condominium Lending Workshop. It's a one-day workshop in Crystal City, Virginia. Then also on March 3rd through the 6th, I'm really excited about this. We'll be doing a live broadcast from this. It's the National Technology Conference uh, that the Mortgage Banking is throwing on, and, uh, and it's at the JW Marriott in Los Angeles. So I'll be there. Very excited to be there. And uh, we're going to be doing a podcast from the DNH booth. That'll be always fun to do that. Um, Check out all the conferences that the NBA is throwing over at NBA Conferences and Education. Google it. You'll see it right there. I also encourage you to sign up for the Mortgage Action Alliance. Such an important part of us making sure we get our voice heard. You know, when you look at the realtor lobby, it's a lot stronger and a lot bigger than ours, so it's important that we have our voice heard, and this is a very easy way to accomplish it. Joe Farr and I are going to be at the TMBA Secondary Marketing Conference that's going on in Houston. I'm going to be there this afternoon and uh, Joe's already driving down there, so he sent over his talking points from this. And I've got the website up here as well, the MBS Quote Line. Of course, I have it up running all the time to see what's going on in the markets. But Joe wanted me to send these notes on. He sends his greetings. And uh, here's what some of the things that we're looking at on the calendar today. We have core PCE, which is personal consumption expenditures. Be looking at that number, where that comes in. In fact, it is already in, and it came in just under what was expected. Economists expected it to be at uh, one-tenth of one percent. It came in at zero. There's no change. And that's down from two-tenths of one percent from the month before. Also, the ISM Services Index came in at 48.2, and that's pretty. It's exactly what it was the previous month. Then we also have the uh, personal ex- uh, no, personal income, that number. That grew just slightly. It's the same as the previous month, but it is it's exactly what it was last month and what economists expected. So overall, you look at the the ISM services index, I mentioned that, 48.2. Yes, I did. So, I mean, everything's pretty normal, but yet today we're watching prices fall and rates rise. Last week was another very good week for the mortgage rates. Rates fell about eight basis points. 
during the week. Uh, for January, rates fell about 25 basis points. Fortunately, this week it was not. This last week was uh, was uh, was really hard. Uh, well, it was not so hard on stocks. That's what Joe is saying here. I'm reading his notes here, and so my apologies. So fortunately, it was not so hard for the stock market. Uh, but you look at the Dow; it actually gained almost 400 points. All of it came back on Friday. So Dow is a big recovery day on Friday, or at least part of it. But but overall, you're still down over 1,000 points. A lot of people are really nervous about the stock market. I think that's going to keep volatility in play. Go back and listen to Les Parker's comments from the last podcast. On the 29th, we had Les on, I believe it was the 29th, the last week in um, January, really interesting comments about all it. Central bankers are providing some big news last week. Uh, first, the U.S. Fed statement uh, provided a few surprises. There were some you know, interesting comments there, but you know, we'll see what happens. I, I think more and more commentators are saying there's no way that the Fed can raise interest rates, although they're not saying that. We'll see what happens. Very doubtful, though. It is recognized that the recent slowdown in the U.S. overseas economy and growth and the market turmoil most likely keep that from happening. On Friday, we had the Bank of Japan uh, surprise the markets with a reduction in their short-term borrowing rate. came as a bit of a surprise that it promised to expand their bond-buying program, uh, if necessary, to spur on economic growth there. So you look at Japan and what they have done, and now I'm looking at where China's at. It's just all very, very interesting. So, again, U.S. data, economic data has been coming in weak this last week, and so we'll see where uh, it, where this all heads. But the fourth quarter of GDP, the advance notice was is seven tenths of percent was expected to be down from two tenths one percent in the third quarter. So, um, lots of good information on here. This week we have uh, after Monday, which is what the data I've already talked about. It's really, you know, we have the ADP payroll change number, the ICM services index on Wednesday, jobless claims. And then uh, the, but the real big one is going to be, of course, on Friday, we've got the uh, non-farm payroll numbers to see about employment growth and unemployment rate. And, of course, tra- trade imbalance will be there, but we're really focusing on the job growth, which is uh, will be very, very telling. So, anyway, I encourage you, I encourage Joe to get back to the micro, and he does such a great job doing that. And I uh, miss him, but I look forward to Pass on your greetings, but he sends his greetings to all of you. So if you don't have this service, I highly recommend you get it. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after this brief break. Looking for that competitive edge? MBS Quoteland delivers live market coverage for originators. Get up-to-the-minute mortgage market news and analysis as events occur. Get MBS prices as trades happen. Straight to your computer, email, cell phone, or PDA. Know in advance when your investors will reprice. Make better lock float decisions and increase your income. Be the expert your clients expect and know what's moving interest rates right now, tomorrow, and beyond. MBS Quoteline, delivering live market coverage for originators. Learn more about MBS Quoteline today at MBS mbsquoteline.com mbsquoteline.com 646-716-4972 The Lickin' on Lending Show is back. Here is your host, David Lickin. It's so good to have you back. By the way, some of the most kindest, most gracious listeners out there. I appreciate your comments. You send them in. It means so much. Thank you so much. That was good. Yeah, we all want Joe back. Joe does a better job, no question about it, but appreciate your encouragement. We've got Paul Mollo on the line. Last week he was snowy in, shoveling snow like crazy. Paul, it's good to have you back on the program, my friend. And I'm looking here over at your website. Got some good stuff out here. So... What you got for us today? Are you are you thawing out up there? Are you getting rid of some of that white stuff? Oh man, you know, actually, I could have called in. I work from home on Monday, and I just completely, 
you know, spaced out when you have all the snow in your yard, uh oh, yeah. on your driveway. No, it was we had uh two two feet and change, maybe two and a half feet in, in Merrill uh, Silver Spring right outside of um T C and it was uh it was something. I mean I listen, I know last year Boston and Maine got clobbered, so I guess we shouldn't complain, but uh T C's not used to this, so but we uh, we managed. Yeah, exactly. And uh yeah, listen, it's sixty degrees sixty degrees today, rain later and it's gonna be sixty on Wednesday, so uh we'll see how no, it's this stuff around. melts. Yeah, yeah it's it not sticking around. I mean I still have a foot on my on my lawn, so we'll see. What do we got? IMF back. news. Uh, listen, yeah. uh, slow growth for Ginny May servicing. That's probably not real surprising. Um, you know, it, it's slowing a little bit in the fourth quarter. Uh, servicing, you know, growth has been slow in general. Uh, the dollar volume of outstanding mortgages, you know, it's creeping up. It's not shooting up, but it continues to go north. And that just goes to show more people taking on mortgage debt and, and larger amounts of mortgage debt. Um, so uh, the good news for the FHA and VA program, delinquencies are down. Uh, a lot of that is, I think, in the 30 to 60, uh, 30 to 60 day category. So we'll continue to track that. Um, a short note about FBR: they dropped coverage of, of PHH, which is interesting yeah. in itself, and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Um, PHH is is just one of those stocks, mortgage stocks, mortgage companies that a lot of people are looking at and have been looking at. Uh it's sort of a, a bellwether to some degree for the mortgage industry. Uh they you know, they continue to get smacked around by uh servicing markdowns. They're trying to, you know, find a way forward. They haven't yet put out an announcement on when they're gonna put out fourth quarter earnings. The non banks are gonna start reporting the end of this week and next week and the week after. All the big mega banks have reported. People are especially going to be looking at earnings for PHH, for Stonegate for Auckland, for NationStar, for Walter. I mean, these are the ones the industry is going to look at and outside investors are going to look at. And, you know, they're going to want to see some kind of plan in progress uh, for this for this group of non-banks, uh, you know, to sort of show a way forward. And PHH, you know, uh, by dropping coverage, FBR points out they have a book value of somewhere in the range of low 20s, and, you know, they're currently trading at 12 bucks a share. So either, you know, something's mm. got to give at PHH sooner or later. People will recall that two years ago they were trying to sell the mortgage company. They never did. They couldn't find a, a bid they liked. They did sell the fleet business. So the, the main asset of PHH Corp is essentially the mortgage business right now. And they've right. had some regulatory issues uh, with mm. Captive MI and the CFPB. Uh, interesting and fascinating story for mortgage uh, uh, for the mortgage industry, and we'll continue to cover it closely. Uh, talking about uh, you know mortgage stocks, Wells on Friday covered uh, filed a 13G on its ownership stake in Aquin, and that's interesting. And, and just because basically, you know, Wells tried to sell like I can't remember now, like 29 billion of non-agency servicing. Uh, two years ago to Aquin, and that deal fell apart. The regulators started cracking down on Aquin, and, and that became a story in itself. You know, we, we called uh, we called Wells, and we said, what's this about? And they sort of clarified, well, we don't really own them. You know, it's it's on behalf of a bunch of our affiliates, Wells Capital Management, Wells Fargo Advisors. It's the ownership stake of a bunch of Wells clients. 
and uh, you know, so Wells clients own five percent of Aquin, and that's sort of interesting because basically it shows that Wells clients are speculating and buying the stock. Now, are they shorting yeah. the stock or are they, or are they going yeah, long? Yeah, what I mean, in the market are they on? Yeah, yeah, we don't know short. yet, but we're going to start looking at the short numbers closely. Uh, but it, who knows? Maybe it's a sign of a bottom for Aquin. And their earnings are going to be another must-watch for the industry in a week or two. Uh, we crunched the CFPB complaint numbers. Uh, Tom Ressler did that of her staff. Uh, mortgage complaints continue to drop um, way, you know, way down compared to earlier periods. Uh, in particular, uh, criticisms about loan modifications are down. Uh, gripes about the application and origination process fell almost 26% quarter to quarter. You know, those I should caution though those those complaint numbers can can uh, go up and down uh, quickly and rapidly from yeah. quarter to quarter. Uh, Wells Fargo has got the most complaints, but that's not surprising because they're the largest lender and service in the nation. Yep. Yeah, and ergo, they should have uh, probably should have that. So we'll continue to watch those as well. Um, ben Ivy, uh, Brandon Ivy, of our staff has got a story about a, an odd case with Senlar. Uh, they uh, a judge basically ordered them to pay a mortgage customer two hundred thirteen thousand uh, dollars. That had to do with a loan modification accent. Um, uh, actions and uh, basically saying they cause you know mental emotional distress and uh, they went beyond the bounds of decency in trying to uh, keep track of that loan and, and modify it. So the details are on the website. I won't go on too much about that. Uh, we also have short take section. Uh, we mentioned PHH again about the uh, the book value of the stock. Uh, the, the big story for the mortgage jumbo industry is that uh, Hugh Hefner's Playboy Mansion is up for is up for sale, and which which, which jumbo lender is out there is going to make that mortgage? Uh, that's you know that's I mean that mansion people who remember Playboy magazine goes back to the 1950s I guess. You know I don't know what year Playboy or Hugh Hefner bought that mansion, but it's five acres in Los Angeles in the Homely uh, Hills neighborhood. Uh, the asking price on this five-acre property is $200 million. Some people might argue that the mansion itself might be worth more than the, the, the magazine franchise. I don't know much about the magazine franchise these days, but like many print publications and, and websites, you know, they're, they're probably struggling to reinvent themselves. But, you know, $200 million for a piece of real estate, that's, you know, that's interesting. Uh, and a short uh, a bit about... Jason Bond, who advises investors on small cap stocks, he was ruminating about what a President Donald Trump, we, you mentioned earlier the Iowa caucuses, what Donald Trump would mean for Fannie and Freddie. He seems to think that it will be good for Fannie and Freddie. Uh, I'm not so sure that's the case. Uh, who knows what's going to happen with Fannie and Freddie uh, and what other presidential candidates would do. It's it's not like any any of the candidates have been asked uh, the Fannie and Freddie question during the debates. Uh, and if they have, I missed it. But, uh, you know, that's going to be – it's going to be an issue for a new administration and a new Congress in 2016. It would be nice if, if someone did ask the question to the candidates, what are you going to do with Fannie and Freddie, and get some uh, solid answers, but that hasn't happened yet. So that's sort of uh, the long and short of it. I know you said Chuck's coming on at uh, at half yeah. uh, at half past. Half past the hour. Half past, or a little bit before. We're actually trying to get to it a little bit quicker because we have about okay. uh, we pre-recorded because he's traveling. In fact, he's listening to the podcast right oh, now, okay. so you can say hi to Chuck and wave to him. And he's, he and his wife are traveling uh, so uh, today. So they're. Uh, 
we, we, we got them on, but uh, he's going to listen to his own voice on there, so you know how that'll go. So, but yeah, so that's actually a really, really good interview, and so you definitely want to listen to it uh, when we play it, or if sure. you uh, want to go back and listen to it. But it, there's actually quite a bit of really, really interesting information. And Andy Shell's on, and he's going to give us some updates as well as related to that. So a lot of very interesting things, especially regarding the multiples and what to expect in the activity. Mm-hmm. So I think you'll enjoy, especially as much as you cover that, and you do an excellent sure. job of covering it. And folks, you cover so much, Paul. And folks, if you are not signed up. To receive the IMF News uh, daily update, you should get it. You can sign up. It's right there on the website, imfnews.com, right at the bottom. Now, sign up. Put your email address, and it says that yellow button. says sign up. You can do it. You can do it, folks. Get it. It's really valuable stuff. Paul, thanks so much for being a part of it. Thank you. It's good to have you here. And if you haven't gone back and watched Colbert uh, do the the Donald Trump uh, – Debate uh, debated himself. It is absolutely hilarious. YouTube, uh, Google it. It is okay. hilarious. It Donald Trump debates himself, and it was over the top. One of the funniest things I've seen. Anyway, appreciate you, and uh, have yourself a great rest of the week. See Thank you back you. here. It's not snowing. See you back here next week, friend. Appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. You bet. Alice Alvey would normally be here with us, but unfortunately, Alice is traveling, and uh, we're going to be together this week and uh, with a client working together. And I encourage you to check out um, the information that she has on her website. Also, a lot of content. I mean, there's so many things that Alice has. It's so much fun to be working with a client. They're usually just stunned with all the information that comes out. But I encourage you to... uh, Get a hold of her. You can check them out at Indicom.com or MortgageU, www.mortgage-u.com. It'll get you all to the same place. We're going to be right back, and uh, Sam Garcia is online, and then we're going to get off into the interview with Chuck here. We'll be right back after this brief break. If you have questions about mortgage regulations, Indicom Mortgage U has free answers. If you need ideas about how to reinvent your organization, Indicom Mortgage U will share great ideas. When you need help at any step of the loan process, give us a call or send an email. The Indicom team of experts have been helping mortgage players from origination through servicing for over 30 years. Your success is our focus. Whether it's a quick question or long-term support, portfolio, conventional, or government lending, it's a competitive market. So let Indicom Mortgage U give you the edge. It's so good to have you all with us. Appreciate it so much. And we have Sam Garcia here, and he's got an update with some of the headlines that he's been tracking. Sam, good to have you here, friend. Check. Oh, by the way, check out his website at www.mortgagedaily.com. Sam, what you got for us? Hey, David, thanks for having me on. Um, we got a lot of stuff, but I'll run through it quickly here for you. Um, our mortgage market index, it was down 12% last week, and of course that index reflects average per-user rate locks by open-close clients. Um, and what was most significant about last week's activity is that jumbo business sank 44% for the week. So that was the, the headline for that particular piece of information. Um, we put out our... Uh, uh, week or monthly report that we get data from EMBS that uh, gives us agency issuance, you know, agency MBS issuance, and we show that during the first month of this year, fixed rate agency MBS issuance was off one percent from December, so a little bit slower than the month before. But the uh, at Jenny May, however, uh, issuance was up seven percent, so uh, they had an up month while the GSEs had a down month for issuance for January. Uh, delinquency at Fannie Mae, 90-day residential delinquency at Fannie Mae was reported at 1.55%. Uh, 
as of December 31st. The last time that Fannie's delinquency was that low was in July 2008, and that was two months before it was thrust into a conservatorship. So continue to make some improvements there on the uh, uh, quality of performance for residential loans there. Um, FHA put out some uh, information, or actually HUD did, and we took a look at that and came up with uh, some numbers, including that FHA endorsements during November were down 22% from October. Um, Single-family delinquency at FHA, and that includes foreclosures and bankruptcies, was uh, 18 basis points worse uh, climb into 12.27%. So um, November, not quite a good month for FHA. We'll see where they go after that. Over at Flagstar, they reported that their uh, originations in the fourth quarter were down by more than a quarter from the third quarter, which, you know, that's a little bit more than a, a lot of the other lenders we've tracked so far. Um, and in the report, the company's CEO explained that their reliance on third-party originations uh, caused them to really have a bigger hit um, from TRID than some of their competitors. So that was kind of some interesting insight uh, about how third-party business actually might get a worse hit from, uh, from TRID. Um, on that report that I heard Paul mention, um, I wanted to just make a note there that even though uh, mortgage complaints were up 6% um, from a year earlier, that was better than the overall financial services. You know, com all the complaints received by uh, CFPB were actually up 12% during that same period. So there's at least been a lower increase in complaints. And then among mortgage lenders, um, we found two, Aquin and Bank of America, who ranked higher uh, among the complaints filed than they uh, justified with their market share. So they're kind of a little bit higher relative to how much market share they have, both Aquin and Bank of America. Um, uh, the coffee was announced, as it is at the end of each month, by the Federal Home Loan Bank of San Francisco, and it was up one basis point in December um, after falling nearly to an all-time low in November, so bounced off a bottom there. And finally, um, last month we reported that Residential Credit Solutions in Fort Worth was laying off over 100 people um, due to an office closing, and when we called at the time, the company wouldn't confirm whether it was actually closing down itself because that office was where its headquarters is. Um, turns out um, that they're being acquired, or at least their assets are, and a few employees are being picked up by Walter Investment, which announced last week that it was picking up some of the assets from that company. So, uh, so that wraps up uh, our headlines, at least some of the bigger ones for the last week or so. Yeah, it's good stuff. You always do a great job. And, folks, I encourage you to check out the website, MortgageDaily.com, or call Sam at 214-521-1300. Sam, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast each week and uh, providing this information. Check, I encourage people to check out also the uh, reports that you have, some really good data uh, reports and uh, analytics that are in your website. Good stuff. Appreciate it so much, Sam. Thank you, sir. You bet. All right, let's... Uh, I want to introduce again to you our latest sponsor, one of our newest sponsors, which is ArchMI. They do a great job of uh, being innovative. They're, they've got some new innovations that are going on. And uh, Jim Jump, who is the ArchMI Mortgage Insurance's chief marketing officer, has uh, wants to share some information about the RateStar program. And I want to bring him on. Uh, this is recorded, so but it is nonetheless very, very helpful, and I encourage you to listen. Hello, David. Always a pleasure to be on the program. Today, I want to share some information about ArchMI's most dynamic and competitive MI rate program. It's called ArchMI RateStar. 
and it's a revolutionary mortgage insurance pricing solution that goes well beyond traditional MI rate sheets to provide competitive rates matched precisely to your borrower. And is now available for customer use. The new program allows for Archimize customers to obtain the most precise mortgage insurance rate possible for each loan they insure with Archimai. Archimai RateStar has already generated tremendous customer interest and enthusiasm for this new, more precise approach to pricing mortgage insurance coverage. We are confident that mortgage originators will recognize that Archimai's RateStar is easy to access, it's easy to use, it's really innovative, and it delivers some of the most competitive rates in the industry. RateStar is available to customers via Archimai's website, archimai.com, and the mobile app is available for Apple and Android devices. It is fully integrated with most loan origination systems and products and pricing engines. And with that, David, I will turn it back over to you and say thank you very much for the time. Thank you so much. Uh, Jim and, and the crew there at Arch uh, Mortgage Insurance has just done a great job. You check out this app. I was on playing with this, and I am so impressed with what they've done in the designing of that app. They do a great job. Check it out. You can go to our website and click on their link uh, that we have their ad that's in there. It'll take you right out to their website, and I encourage you to do so. Again, ArchMI, Mortgage Insurance. Very innovative, very cool stuff, especially that app. Check it out. Profit Doctor is with us. I am so excited to have him back on. You know, he travels so much, and he's gotten so busy this year, we don't get to have him on quite as often as you like. But, Andy Shell, I know you have another webinar coming up, if I recall correctly. Tell us a little bit about that, and then I would like your comments after we're done with Chuck's interview and I get some more perspective on that. So, Andy? You bet you did. Hey, thanks. <clears throat> Great to be on the show. Um, it's uh, it's Austin. It's February in Austin, which means raging cedar. The the cedar count mm. goes to like twenty five billion per whatever. So um, it always affects my voice. Yeah. <clears throat> so um, we got a webinar coming up, Dave, on hedging and hedge accounting, and that's through the MBA education, and it's starting on February the twenty. Fifth, and so I would encourage folks to go to mba.org, click on education, look at webinars, and sign up to understand the language of business. Sign up for a mortgage accounting session. And I'm looking forward to also, Dave, uh, commenting. There, I sounded like Sarah Palin. Looking to also. Um, I'm looking forward to commenting after Chuck's piece about the the reality, some of the finance that goes behind the outcome yeah. that Chuck talks about. Yeah. So we, there, there's, we're going to try to pull the curtains back and understand the drivers behind the values. So I look forward to that too, Dave. Good, so much, so much fun. I'm looking forward to your comments about that. It was a really good interview. I can't wait to get to it. But before we do, I want to swing over to uh, the this week's key performance indicator, the KPI of the week from Motivity Solutions. And we have John Maynell, who has uh, given us this update, and we want to play that right now. Hi, David. Thanks very much. Always great to be here. And this week's key performance indicator is underwriting to clear-to-close pull-through. It's a very important ratio that can shed light on pre-underwriting activities, and it's tough to get this measurement to be or stay at 100%, but that does remain the goal for most lenders. So here again, we have a strategic KPI or a measurement that can drive strategy at operational points upstream from, in this case, underwriting, since we're measuring units cleared to close over units submitted to underwriting. 
Things that contribute to this measurement typically revolve around file quality, so our clients generally examine everything from pre-qualifying practices to product selection. And monitoring this key performance indicator always leads to more effective and efficient marketing and prospecting, demonstrating once again that what gets measured gets results. And with that, David, I'll thank you again and turn it back to you. Love that. What gets measured gets results. Folks, check it out. Learn more about Motivity's real-time mortgage business intelligence solution. You can go there by dialing or going and uh, Googling mortgage solution, uh, Motivity Solutions or go to MotivitySolutions.com or call them at 303-721-9000. It's a powerful tool. And I, <laughs> like MBS quote line, I just don't know how people run their business without it. So it's good to have you here with us, everybody. And now this last week, I had this opportunity. On, uh, it was late Thursday. I picked up the phone and connected with Chuck. Uh, again, he's traveling. And so we could not get him on here live. We always prefer to have people on live, but we can't. We do connect with them and bring this important. The reason this is so significant is there is a fair amount of activity. So without further ado, let's get in and listen to the comments of what's going on in the world of M&A. Folks, good to have Chuck Klein with us, one of the foremost authorities on mergers and acquisitions. If you haven't heard, there is a lot of activity going on out there and we want to get insights and an update on the M&A space. So for that reason, I've invited a good friend and someone I have a tremendous respect for, for to join us today. Chuck, good to have you on the broadcast. Well, thank you, Dave. It's, it's always good to be with you, and I'm glad to, to give you some updates any way I can, and I'm mm-hmm. glad to be part of this once again. It's good to have you here, Chuck. You know, when Chuck, when we're hearing more and more about M&A, Paul Malo, who we both know very well, is calling you, I'm sure, regularly because you're one of the leaders in the M&A space for the mortgage industry. Give us an update. What is the sense of going on? Is it is it hype or is there, in fact, a heightened amount of M&A activity? Well, you know, Dave, this, this is an interesting time of the year and uh, normally, in, in normal years, we see a real slowdown of, of M&A activity after Thanksgiving. And the reason for that is if you want to get a deal done, it, it takes, you know, it could be as much as six months to get a transaction done. But people become so focused on finishing deals, they're not starting new ones. So there's downtime during the holiday season and in, in new activity. And normally it's it's sometime within the, the towards the end of the first quarter before activity picks up again because most companies are cleaning up year end stuff and, and planning for the, the new year and budgets and getting ready for for their uh, audits and taxes and on and on and on. So that would be a normal year. But what's interesting is we actually had a lot of conversations at year end in 2015 to the holidays and finishing up deals we were working on. But I, I've had, in, you know, in these first, you know, three and a half weeks of the year, uh, just a tremendous amount of, of conversations about, you know, possibly uh, new uh, opportunities to acquire and new opportunities from mortgage companies considering sales. So, so I, I'd say we're about as busy this time of the year as, as we've ever been. Is it a result of more buyers coming to the market or sellers, or, or are you seeing a good combination of both? You know, I, I, I think it's both. I think interest rates, you know, they, they 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 can't quite decide where they want to go. But you know, if you look at where rates are right now, they're they've really been in a pretty steady trading range, about one percent. So uh, I think with that in mind, most uh, potential buyers and MSR buyers, 
you know, aren't aren't really anticipating the value of MSRs to be going down substantially, and so they think it's probably a little more safe environment to to be buying a company that has you know a lot of MSRs in the balance sheet potentially. Uh, so I, I think that you know returns in the mortgage business have always been good. Uh, they're still good, so that's has generated activity and uh, interest on behalf of the buyers. And um, you know, I think from the seller standpoint, Dave, that what, what I'm I'm hearing more and more of is the the challenge of compliance. And uh, I think TRID really shook a lot of foundations. And even though it it appears to be something everybody's getting through and getting through easily, it was just one more uh, problem area. That mortgage companies had to deal with, and, and compliance during the last, you know, several years, as you're well aware, has is really taken a toll on the mortgage companies. And not that it's cost them any money, other than the resources to become compliant and the dedication of staff to do it. Uh, but I think what really disturbs some companies is the risk of compliance, and more you know, precisely, the risk of non-compliance. That you know, if it's one thing to, to make a couple of bad loans and have to repurchase them, uh, then you have to scratch and dent them and sell them for some percent of the principal. You know, so it's, that's that's one issue. But it's something else to to have the CFPB come in and, and audit you for some particular reason and, you know, a levy, uh, you know, $20 million fine. So, you know, the I think a lot of, of, uh, of mortgage company owners – you know, look at the their companies and see a tremendous amount of their net worth is tied up in that company every single day, their personal net worth. And so without net worth being at risk, maybe it makes some sense to, you know, take some of that risk off the table. And the only way that you're going to do that is to sell some equity or some part of your equity in the company. So uh, we, we've had those conversations. And uh, I, I really thought a couple of years ago that that was going to take a toll. And it's, it's I think, finally beginning to ring home. And I'm, I'm almost believing that TRID was the one that got everybody's attention. And uh, even though it's, it was an issue that people are working through, it took a lot of time to get ready for it. And I think the risk is out there. And, you know, Dave, the other thing that we don't talk about a whole lot, but I think is a real factor, <clears throat> is mortgage companies today. And if you look at uh, most of the successful mortgage companies that are privately held, those companies are, you know, 15, 20, sometimes 25 years old and a little bit older. And, you know, the owners of those companies are beginning to get older, so they're approaching retirement age, too. And so all those things are kind of going hand-in-hand hand with people having an interest. Well, maybe I need to, you know, consider the succession plan and this, this exit strategy we've talked about for so many years. And <clears throat> you and I have had that discussion so many times that when I would ask, you know, most mortgage company owners, what's your exit plan? They give you a blank look. Well, we don't really have an exit plan. And that's, you know, that that's accurate. That you you build this company, you build this franchise, and how are you going to get out of it? And, Great point. You know, unless you have, you know, a succession plan, and whether you've got kids are in the business or a management teammate capable of taking it over, well, you know, you you have a tremendous amount of risk there every day. And then the the bigger question: Well, what happens if something happens to the owner of the mortgage company? What is there for his his uh, heirs, and his spouse especially? And it, it becomes really pretty pretty uh, alarming when you think that well my mortgage company may be worth you know a lot of money twenty thirty million dollars but if something happens to me the best my spouse will probably get would be the book value possibly 
And, you know, who wants a bunch of used furniture? So, you know, it, it, it becomes pretty precarious. You get your cash out. And so I think companies and owners of companies have beginning to decide, hey, may, maybe time to look at something. So once again, that's, I think, it's, it's generated conversations today. And uh, we're, you know, we're, we're seeing quite a few already. And I've had some really good sessions this year, as I said, with both buyers and sellers. When it comes to market value, I, I think that's the biggest thing that a lot of people really struggle with is they work hard in a business and they think it's worth something, but market value might say some, suggest something else. How do you fairly create a value for a company? What is the process and what is a realistic expectation in today's market for what a seller could get for a company? And is it at different levels for different volume sizes? What are the factors that go into it? Yeah, great, great question, Dave. I, I would say generally, most mortgage company owners have a higher expectation of value than, mm-hmm. than what the market is willing to pay. And quite honestly, you know, if, if I was an owner of a mortgage company, I'd feel the same way. But mortgage companies, the returns, as I mentioned earlier, are very, very good. That when you look at a company that you know, a mortgage company uh, could have you know a twenty consistently a twenty-five to fifty percent return on equity year over year. It's pretty doggone impressive. And so, if you you look up at the end of every year, and and uh, I'm making about you know anywhere from twenty to fifty percent of my net worth every year, and the earnings you know are are so high. Well, I think my company's probably worth a, a very great multiple of earnings for somebody to come in and buy this. Well, you know, the, the reality sets in that if you're not involved, the company may not have that that uh, that income level because you're not there, the guiding force, to drive it. So those are considerations that have to be in place. But I, I try to bring, you know, the owners into a reality very quickly in that, you know, mortgage companies basically have a value of their book value plus about two times earnings. Is that a net earnings? Because when you say earnings, there's a gross net EBITDA and then net no, pre-tax. Well, it's it's even a little bit uh, better than EBITDA. It's net uh, all expenses deducted with the exception of taxes. So it's uh you know, it's it's a bottom line number. So if you look, if we we take depreciation out as well, so okay. and amortization, so it's it's probably a you know a very finite number that people can get to, but uh, it it is an all an all net number pre-tax. And does that include? Do you back out executive compensation if it's a fairly substantial amount well, people are pulling out? Is no, that- we really don't. We really don't. And, and here's now, if if it's overcompensation. Then yes, we would. If if the owner of the company is you know saying, well, hey, I'm you know I got a little company and we're closing you know a hundred million a year, but I'm paying myself a million dollars a year in salary. Well, that's a little over aggressive. What yeah. we look at is we, we we try to get to a market value of executive salaries, Dave. So you know I, I think you'll see most executives of mortgage companies are you know the the two hundred to five hundred million a year. They're they're making somewhere. Salaries of two hundred, about two hundred fifty thousand to half a million a year, and that's that's pretty typical that we see. Now, what we do back out would be dividends and and uh, those types of things and profit profit sharing. Okay. And so, if if the the owner's paying himself profit bonuses, you know, every quarter or so, well, th- those are things we would probably uh, we would definitely deduct from from those those earnings. A lot of people say, I want to be able to stay in it for a little while. I think I want to go to the windows, they say, sell the company, but I'm willing to stay on for a little while 
And then others say, you know what, I'm, I want to get this sold and I want to be out. How often is it requ- a requirement of a sale that the seller, the founder, the owner, the person benefiting from the sale stay on? Is, is it varied based on the depth of the management team? What are the factors that go into that? I'd say probably greater than 90% of the time they want the owners and those executives that are responsible for driving the company, responsible for you know, holding the relationships, the loan officers, the production people, those people have to stay. And it's very seldom are we able to take an owner out on day one. And the exception is normally if, if it's an inactive owner. Uh, someone who's purely an investor of the mortgage company. He's not involved in, in or has been involved in the day-to-day activity. And a lot of times those guys are only, only minority owners, but sometimes they, you know, we, we do see some of that. Now, the, the difference can be is if you know, the owner is, is fairly inactive. You know, let's say he's got kids in the business or he's got a management team who's been running it, and he's getting up in the years, and he really hasn't been involved in the day-to-day. And, and the buyer can have a uh, assurance level that the succession team is able of managing the company and managing and managing those relationships with those loan officers and production people. Well, then then it can happen. But today, you know, most most buyers want that owner involved. You know, and I tell you, in the old days, the buyers wanted to buy 100%. I say the old days, in the last five years. You know, we're seeing it less and less. They now will say, hey, we'll buy 80%. We want you to keep 20% of the company. Oh, interesting. And they, you know, they want them to have the skin in the game. So they're they're watching the bottom line every single day. So that that is almost encouraged a, a large amount of deals, in, in equity deals, of course, not asset deals, but in right. equity deals, uh, we'll, we'll see the owners maintain a percentage of ownership. When you look at these various sales, and there's different ways they're structured. One is cash up front, and others, there's an earnout. What are you seeing as the more common or the more preferred way in most of these deals? And is there a bigger multiple if it's an earnout? Yeah. Well, yes, 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 and yes. <laughs> all those things. <laughs> uh, I, I, all, all the sellers want all the cash up front, and all the buyers want all the cash paid in the form of an earnout. So, you know, it's 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 a mixture of, of both. Uh, I don't. We we do very few deals where all the the uh, premium is paid uh, at at the closing table. As I said, most deals are structured where there's you know a book value plus a multiple of earnings. And very common would be you would get the book value of your company if it's if it's an asset sale. You can take your cash off the table, and the buyer will buy the you know the fixed assets of the company and the the furniture fixture and inventory those types of things and equipment um and then there'll be an earnout for some period of time now if you're a seller the challenge is to get as much a premium at the closing table as much you know as much of the earnout as possible at the closing table as you want the buyer is going to be charged just the opposite way he's going to try and capture as much so you know if a company's worth two times earnings you know it, it, a, a good you know um Opportunity for a seller would be to get you know one time of the earnings at closing and the other earnings paid over some period of time. So uh, you know it can be done in different ways. If you say okay, well the earnings are you know the hard part. What what really pushes the buyers to pay more of a of a multiple or more of a premium at closing is the stability of of the earnings of the mortgage company. And let's look at you know the reality of of the business over the last few years. That most companies had a tremendous 2012. Right. Their 2013 wasn't quite as good. 2014 generally wasn't very good. And they've had good 
2015. So it's it's erratic earnings. Now, the companies who have maintained profit margins consistently through 12, 13, 14, and 15 have a much better chance of capturing hmm. a higher premium at the closing table. And so if you can prove that you know your, your earnings are very consistent and the, the, the basis point profit margin is consistent, well, that's very important to a buyer. So they're more likely to, to buy into paying you more at the closing table. But if, if they're erratic, then the buyer's going to say, well, I, I don't have any idea what your earnings are going to be. Your production level is going up and down from year to year. You did great in 2012. We did a lot of refis. But come 13, when refis fell off, you didn't do very good. In 14, yeah. you did even worse. So, you know, it's it's companies that, that don't, you know, have a huge dependency on refis or you know, can can be a much more convincing case for getting more of a premium. But generally, though, Dave, back to your original question, we're going to see, you know, some some earnout uh, being applied in almost every single case. Um, and that, like I say, if mo- most sellers will come back to me, and I have this discussion with buyers all the time who just want to buy it for the book value and, and a very small premium at closing. And the, the typical comment from a seller is, why would I sell my company for less than what I'm going to make next year as far as a premium? So if if we can get to a common ground to where we, we can arrive, and normally the best way to do it is to really have a confidence level in what the production level will be in the next 12 months. And if the, the uh, uh, profit margins are consistent, well, that makes the task easier. And if we can capture one time's earning at the closing table, and let's just say that's a million dollars, and the second time's earnings over a period of time, it could be anywhere from a year to three years, sometimes four years, a percentage of that million dollars over the next several years based on the profits of the company, based on you know certain target levels being achieved. Well, then those are those are deals that we see done quite often, that there's, you know, like I say, normally some type of, of an earn out over a period of time. And once again, the buyer wants to stretch it out for a longer period of time normally, and the seller wants to, you know, close it in as close to, uh, you know, the shorter amount of time for the earnout as possible. When you look at companies and their profitability, Chuck, uh, you know, you look at a lot of companies and they've done fairly well, and you bring up earnings, and there's some companies that are trending the wrong way, and and even some that are losing money in a particular period. Can you sell a company like that? Is that even possible? Well. Uh, yes, you can. I mean, we we sold companies with no earnings and who haven't had any earnings. But normally, the w- way that sale happens is they've got you know either agency approvals or a lot of state approvals, okay. and those are worth some money too. But Dave, you know, as I always tell my customers, you know, the best time to sell is when you're on top of your game at the highest levels. And guess what? Most companies don't sell then because mm-hmm. the owners are saying, hey, I'm making so much money, why do I want to sell? And all of a sudden, refi away, and the profit margins are dropping off dramatically, and they're losing people, and they're laying off people, and on and on and on. Then they see their their, their profits <laughs> declining, their volumes declining, and guess what? I think we want to sell now. Well, it's not quite as attractive when you're losing money as it is when you're making money. So, But back to your question, the way you can do that, it may have to be 100% in the form of an earnout. But it could be a company of different reasons that they've lost money. And, you know, there's there's different reasons someone would consider that. It could be, you know, they lost staff. You know, who, who knows? There's a, a hundred different scenarios you can paint out there. But, you know, if, if the buyer can have confidence that, hey, we can get this thing turned around, we can get it back profitable again, 
Well, they're 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 willing to take uh, a look at it, especially if they can maintain the producers. The producers are there who can get the job done. Uh, you know, it could an example would have been repurchases. What what if they lost you know two million dollars last year, but they were they had three million dollars worth of repurchases. So they actually had a profitable year, but they got slammed with repurchases. Now, as we know, repurchases aren't quite the problem they were, but those type of circumstances can take a you know cause a buyer to take a, a good close second look and derive a way to do it. But if you're losing money, most likely that premium is going to be paid in some form of an earnout. Yeah, and that totally makes sense. But it is possible, and it but a lot of it's going to be based on the approvals, the nature of the business, and what in, you know, intrinsic value is beyond just the earnings. So let's, well, let's always go back to you know values in the eye of the beholder. So it's mm-hmm. beauty in the eye of the beholder. Well, values the same way. If the buyer can get a comfort level and see something with the company that that is attractive to him to want to execute the sale, well, then they'll go forward with it. You know, contingency risk. Let's talk briefly about that. You know, someone who's been in business for a long period of time, they've had a lot of business. Uh, and they have that always that lingering buyback risk. How is that factored into a tra- uh, into a sale of a company? Is are there reserve accounts held aside for that? Is there how, how do you handle it? Well, normally, you know, you would set up a reserve account, and repurchases are something that you're going to want to see some historical data. You know, and I can tell you, Dave, I've been working on a sale here that we're tr- we've been trying to finish up here. We should have finished in the next 30 days or so. The company's 20 years old, never had a repurchase, has never wow. purchased a loan back. So it's it's not much of an issue with them. Different than one that's had a history of repurchases. It may be just recently having some loan repurchase, which means something wasn't quite right. There's a glitch in there. High delinquencies, high foreclosure rates to where the buyers are looking at scorecards and say, hey, we've got some risk here. So normally the way you'd work around that is is some part of your premium would be paid. It could be part of the net worth even paid uh, would be in a form of reserve. Now the good news is is most mortgage companies who are you know adequately managed and have have good financials and have good accounting people they've already got reserve established on the balance sheet. So those those reserves are in place. The buyer may say, hey, I, I see some additional risks. So we may want to put an additional amount of reserve for some period of time. Maybe it's twelve months. Maybe it's twenty four months. Some defined period of time uh, would be would be normal the way you would normally the way you would handle something like that. Well, we've been focusing on a acquisition, and there's also the mergers aspect of M and A. It's the first letter in there. So mergers and acquisitions. What do you see as far as actually companies merging together? Is there a lot of activity? I, I haven't seen much of that at all, Dave. And you know, we we used to see what what we consider you know mergers. You're just swapping stock. Then mm-hmm. you know the the buyers exchanging stock in, ex, in exchange for the stock of the other mortgage company. So you're combining the two companies. And companies are very similar in size who are you know merging together, merging stock. But I, we don't. I haven't seen many of those. I'm sure those deals are getting done. But most of the deals I work on are companies in very similar size. And you and I have been, you know, have been uh, trading some notes on a company, and we've had conversations with a potential seller. Yes. And they're trying to decide what to do, but they're very similar in size, and so it's a good chance they will end up being a a merger of companies per se, because one of them's, you know, is a little bit larger than the other one. And who's going to be their surviving entity? Well, it's the one that has all the approvals. Well, in this case, you know, one has most of the agency approvals, whereas the other one doesn't. So they'll 
they'll be the surviving entity, but uh, it'll be a you know if the deal happens, it'll be a merger of of uh, companies and, and sharing stock. But normally, it's a larger company and, and buying a smaller company. And there's a lot of mortgage companies looking to grow through acquisitions. And you know usually they don't want to pay very much. You know the mortgage company wants to all to be in the form of an earnout. They and they you know they just don't have the capital that some of the other investors do. Banks, you know, a little bit different story. If the bank's buying a mortgage company, well, you know, most times because they don't have a presence in the mortgage business. And, you know, you will see some out there, but most of the banks looking to buy mortgage companies are trying to make an interest in the business. And they're looking for a platform that is already up and producing and has a good management team that can help the bank get into the mortgage business. And, you know, in those cases, that'll that'll always be an acquisition. There's, you know, sometimes you'll see an exchange, you know, that could be bank stock, which is awfully good currency. That's, right. that's a great way to do it. But it's usually a smaller percentage of the sale price. But And a lot of times it's driven because the seller wants cash. You know, he wants to put money in the bank. And uh, stock is, if it's a publicly held bank, that's one thing. Privately held, it's you know, a little little more risky because, you know, the market for privately held stock it is, isn't as great as publicly held stock. What about buyers? We've been focusing on the sellers. We need to get over to the buyer side with the remaining time we have. What are you seeing as far as the volume of buyers and the nature and makeup of buyers that are coming to the market looking to acquire companies? Well, it's it's interesting. You know, last year probably I would say 80% of the buyers we talked to were the mortgage companies. And, you know, they they were looking to what we call strategic acquisitions to fill in kind of pieces of the puzzle in different markets where they might be weak or they wanted to establish more of a presence. But, you know, they were they comprised most of the uh, buyers that we saw out there. Now, uh, I can tell you that of the deals that we did last year, you know, probably only 20% were done to the mortgage companies. Most of them were done to financial institutions and uh, firms outside of the mortgage, the mortgage space itself. But I'm getting a lot of conversation right now with, once again, with PE firms and hedge funds, and a lot being several a week that are, you know, outside – uh, industries are looking to get into this, and once again, they're looking at you know the ability. I think what's real a buzzword for most of them is the the non-agency type mortgage-backed securities, you know, for non-QM, jumbos, those types of things, and they're they think that's a real market that they can participate in, and you know, most of them you know are very familiar with the, the mortgage-backed securities route and uh, mortgage servicing rights, and they, they see a huge benefit in being able to get involved there. So uh, I've got a call, actually, in, you know, another, uh, just shortly from now, with sp- specifically that, a, uh, a hedge fund that's looking to get, get in the mortgage business. Are you seeing a lot of banks? And if so, is it more community banks that are looking to get into the mortgage industry? Yeah, that's what we've seen, Dave. I, I'd like to have a couple of big regionals, but... You know, the the reality is most of those regionals have a mortgage presence already, and so, you know, they're they're already in the game to, to some extent. But if I could find a, a large regional bank, I'd love to talk to them. I've got a couple large mortgage companies who might be a perfect fit for them. But to answer your question, most of the banks are coming in are community banks, and they're not necessarily small banks, you know. They could be mm-hmm. four or $5 billion, you know, institution. So they're, they're good-sized entities. Uh, we did a deal last year with a, a bank. Uh, had a small mortgage presence, acquired a mortgage company, but they they were far in excess of the size of the mortgage company they bought. I'm, I'm telling them, you guys need to buy another a bigger mortgage company. But uh, <laughs> they they uh, were happy with the one they found. So oh, that's good. Uh, but it's primarily community banks. 
I know the topic of MSRs, mortgage servicing rights, are uh, another item that can be traded. And you look at how a company, they they may not want to sell the whole company, but they maybe want to sell out their servicing. Give us some insights into MSR sales. Uh, you have been an expert, and in fact, you've been doing that probably longer than you've been doing just M&A, if I recall your background. Yeah, we, we started off doing MSRs uh, back in 1988, and it was a we they weren't even MSRs and they were just called servicing rights and they they defined MSRs as you know a little bit later made made that a definition but, uh, yeah we we trade a lot of portfolios and you know we are not active to the extent we were in the past and uh, you know you, you couldn't trade mortgage servicing rights for a lot of years so we became less active in it but we've we've traded several portfolios here lately and I tell you overall what I found there's a lot more buyers present today than there there were ten years ago there's a lot of yeah, there's a lot of in, in good sized buyers, large companies looking at now again, they're looking for large portfolios. If the portfolio is less about five hundred million, you know, most of these bigger guys aren't interested. But the premiums being paid are you know, they're you know, my recent experiences they're good. They're not great, but they're good and I think there was a, a period of time in the last couple of years where where MSRs were trading a lot higher than where they're at today. But you know, it's a good way to to generate some cash. You know, your your MSR is on your balance sheet and counts against your capital, so that's great. But it's not cash. And if you need to have cash for certain things, MSR is a a nice uh, asset that can generate cash for you in a fairly short amount of time. And to me, the the real benefit is the retention of the MSR because the economic yes. value is a lot higher than what the, the market value is, and especially these interest rate levels where that MSR asset if it stays on your your balance sheet, you know, eight, nine, ten years, that uh, could be interesting. But real the other thing that was really interesting that this last uh, MSR sale we worked on is we, you know, through our analytics, we found that. There's a lot of activity in FHA loans right now for refinances, hmm. and much higher than we thought it would be, and you know somewhere, you know, in excess of five percent, and you know, and and uh, sometimes as high as ten and fifteen percent. And the reason for that was a change in the MIP, the upfront MIP that they yes. changed that, and they've lowered it. So a lot of the the uh, 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 buyers have said, "Hey, let's lower our number." MIP down, so there's been some refinance activity there, and, That's interesting. and you know, good and well, those originators, original loans, have targeted that. Say, hey, we were at the higher MIP rate. Let's go. Let's refinance these guys at a lower MIP and lower their payments for them. So that has an impact on the older servicing FHA MSRs. Prepayment speeds up higher. Yes, yeah. it was really, really shocking that that the uh, uh, the prepayment speeds were a lot higher than we thought they were. What about financing of MSRs? That's another way you can get cash to your balance sheet. You can finance them. So talk a little bit about the trends there. Yeah, well, Real quickly. I'm not an expert there, but you know we have several uh, very close associates who participate in MSR financing, and they've done well with it. And it's a good way for a mortgage company to borrow against that MSR. Right. Here's a good example. One of, one of our best customers, we were talked about a potential sale, and they thought, you know, we, we want to put some, some cash in the bank. And we we want to, you know, see an equity event here. Well, they decided they were able to get some MSR financing, and they were allowed to take some out of the mortgage company in the form of equity to take it home and to repay it out of current earnings. And so that was their thought that, hey, this makes more sense. Rather than try and bring, you know, give up equity in our company, let's finance these MSRs, take some equity off the table, 
and replenish it, we'll pay the MSR back, the uh, financing back with, with earnings. Well, I, I thought it was a great way to do it. And the interest rates are still pretty low on MSR financing. So that's one benefit you have. Like you said, the ability to, to generate cash is, is very important. And there's, you know, there's more and more of that happening right now. So it's, uh, it's an interesting uh, phenomenon. You, you could have financed MSRs five years ago to save your life. But it's that- end, uh, <laughs> right now. How important is it to someone start planning a sale? Is it six months in advance, a year, two years, five years? What What's your advice to someone who says, you know, I, I may want to sell. I'm not ready to do it now. But when should they start talking to you about it, Chuck? Well, my my thought is to begin planning for it a couple of years before you want the event to occur. To occur. And sometimes, you know, we can come across an opportunity that will just be a perfect fit. But if if the individual wants an exit at some point, well, you know, he, he needs to be planning that he's got to stick around for a period of time, number one, that most companies who buy it don't want you to exit on day one, as we talked about early on in, in your in our conversation. And so if he's going to have to sign a, a <coughs> two- to three-year employment agreement, they, they need to begin planning that a couple of years they are probably required to stay with the company. But for the actual sale itself, I, I tell our customers, you need to plan on six months from start to finish to get the deal done. And, you know, I've seen them take as long as a year. So but I think the normal sale is, you know, I'd like to – can it be done quicker? Absolutely. I'd like to say we can do it quicker. But in most cases, it's about a six-month process from start to finish to complete one. But as I, I said, keep in mind that there's going to be some uh, period of time for employment contracts and non-compete clauses that, you know, that buyer is going to want you around. So I, I'd start – you know, figure two to three years in advance of your exit, you need, to be, you need to start considering it seriously. If someone wants to start that conversation now, Chuck, what's the best way for uh, one of our listeners to call you and connect with you? Well, the best way is my direct line, which is 512-501-2813. And uh, my email address is ckleen, K-L-E-I-N, ckleen at mbs hyphenteam.com. Good. Chuck, thanks so much for taking time out of your busy day to be here with us and give us an M&A update. Really appreciate you taking the time out and being here with us, friend. Dave, it's always a pleasure. Thanks again for having me and love to do it anytime. Blessings to you, my friend. That was a great amount of information, and uh, I really enjoyed listening to that interview. I got some more out of it, and I'm the one that recorded it. Uh, Andy, Profit Doctor, you're uh, you've got you work closely with Chuck in a lot of this M and A. Your thoughts and interjections after what you just heard? Well, first, congratulations to you, Dave, for coming up with amazing questions, and congratulations to Chuck Klein for his ability to simplify complex information and deliver very clear, understandable answers uh, to the question. Yeah, he did a great job. Uh, honestly, honestly, Dave, I think that that spiel I just heard was probably one of the best explanations of mortgage banking M&A activity ever. And I've, I've been around both of you guys for seven years. And so that was very, very well done. You know, Chuck hit on a lot yeah. of really important points, and I'll just highlight highlight one uh, maybe two one is you know where where does where does market value come from and chuck answered it as being the earnings and uh it's not ebitda it's earnings before tax like he said 
and then earnings before tax on volume is one of the metrics that are used to evaluate that number. And so for a buyer, when you're buying a mortgage company, and if you're going to pay something up front for something you expect to get in the future, you typically look into the past to see what's happened. And the more stable the past is, the more predictable the future is. So it's really about predicting future cash flows. That's where it comes down to. And the buyer is going to take the amount of money they're going to spend for the acquisition and look at the expected future cash flows and then calculate an internal rate of return based on the future earnings given the price that they pay. And they're also going to look at how long it takes for them to recover their initial investment. They're going to validate this back with net present value calculations. So there's a bunch of finance that's going on in the background. But when you look at the details, it all makes sense. But the make sense part is driven off of predicting the future. And that's why Chuck said that the earnouts will pay a higher multiple because the buyer is not taking the risk for the future payout. They're sharing that risk with the uh, seller, the current owner. That's also why the participation uh, purchases are going at higher multiples because the the seller and the buyer have an, have an equal perspective on the success in the future, and that drives the higher probability of future earning stability, and that drives a higher multiple. So you know, Chuck threw out the two and a half as a rule of thumb, and that's that's absolutely correct. But it can go up and it can go down based on a lot of variables. So at the end yeah. of the day, it's really uh, it, this stuff's complicated. There's uh, I don't know of any other firm in the country that understands this business as well as our firm does. And there's nobody, no person who can manage the deals better than Chuck Klein. So if this is something that's even remotely on your on your uh, future, and some people are wanting to join because of risk with the CFPB, like Chuck said, or but anyway, just call, just give Chuck a call, send him an email, send me an email. I mean, any of us, and uh, we can talk more about it. Yeah, great information. In fact, that's a great way. Again, Chuck uh, has gave out his information. If you want to give your information out as we wrap up this program, Andy, so people can get a hold of either one of you. And then over there's a lot of great information on your website as well. So share your contact with well, everybody again. Thanks, Dave. Well, you know what's funny about that is that you and I and Chuck all have last names that are hard to spell. Nobody, Everybody misspells <laughs> Lickens, Shell, and Klein. And so yeah. I, like you, went to Andy at mbs-team.com just because everybody kept misspelling Shell. So it's Andy at mbs-team.com. Our website's mbs-team.com. So, um, Good job. Thanks, Dave. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. It was great having you on, and uh, thanks so much to Chuck and everybody. Next week, we're going to be focusing on TRID for the next two weeks. We have Loretta Salzano coming on, an attorney who is an expert in the space. She's going to also tee it up for the next guest we have on the week after that. Nancy Alley will be our guest with Simplefile. And really talking about TRID solutions. There are solutions out there, folks. You've got to stay tuned to all of this. We appreciate you being a part of this. We're here to help you sort through all the issues going on in this crazy industry and bring you information. Tell others about the podcast and uh, appreciate you being here with us. Thanks so much. Have a great week, everybody. Safe travels to those of you who are traveling and great production. Talk to you soon. This has been Lickin' on Lending. 
a weekly mortgage market update with your host, David Lincoln of Mortgage Banking Solutions, enabling executives to take their business to the next level. Today's guests were Joe Farr from MBS Line, Andy Shell of Mortgage Banking Solutions, and Alice Alvey, President CMB of Mortgage U. Come by next week and thank you for listening. 